Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, we have Sasha Peterson from Adaptation International. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or visit the Facebook page. All right, stick around. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. This is your host, Doug Parsons. On today's episode, I have Sasha Peterson, founder of Adaptation International and much, much more. Hey, Sasha, how you doing? Hey, good, Doug. How are you? So I was digging around your website, and you don't actually have a title there at Adaptation International. What what, what do you call yourself? Oh, that's a good question. In some ways, I'm a founder. I'm a project manager. Manager. I'm also, you know, the janitor and occasional bookkeeper. But no, we're just a small organization. But we work primarily on bridging the gap between the climate science world and the on the ground action to build resilience. So whatever it takes to make those projects happen and help our communities be more prepared is what I end up doing. Well, you started this in 2010, right? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you were kind of lucky, too. I mean, your website is adaptationinternational.com. I'm surprised you were able to get that sort of name. That that was good. <laughs> oh, thanks. You think that would have been bought up, you know, even by some international group. So, that's... Well, you know, like at that time, the attention was really on the climate space on greenhouse gas emissions production. So there were like climate action plans and there was work to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but there wasn't really a lot of work going on on the adaptation side of it and building the resilience piece that we now know is so critical. And so, you know, really was a good fit at that time to kind of spur this new area and kind of devote my efforts to the place where I'm the most passionate. I typically start off these podcasts, I mean, I, I'm relatively softball thrower question kind of guy, <laughs> but you know what, Sasha, I know you well enough. I mean, Sasha and I have interacted on occasion through his work at ASAP and other other times, and so we don't we haven't really worked together that much, but we know each other, and so I feel like I can just start off with hostile question. You get to the <laughs> you, you get to the homepage of uh, climate, I mean, Adaptation International, and there's this whole there's a picture, and it says we build climate resilience together and you're using that r word and you, <laughs> you know what i'm talking about and you even call yourselves adaptation international and you were talking about building resilience and so what if someone builds a seawall right next to a wetland you see what i'm getting at here mm -hmm. why'd you stick that on your homepage? <laughs> well i know doug that you definitely have a solid perspective and on the word resilience and what it, you know, does mean and doesn't mean to meet people. We, I mean, I feel like it does tend to resonate with the people that we're working with. And I don't think, and you know, that it necessarily implies the status quo, you know, the Kresge Foundation and others have been using the, you know, thinking about resilience in order to think about not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward from extreme weather events and changing climate conditions. And so, for us, it's thinking about resilience, not just for current state, but also the resilience to the future impacts of climate change. So I'm thinking about it broadly over time and being resilient, not just for now, but for the future as well. And so that's why we tend to use that term. Okay. So I have no doubt that that's what you mean by that definition, but you know what I'm talking about is that there might be a technical definition that's at odd as a, that perspective. So I guess that's where we're getting into trouble. 
<laughs> so why do why do you feel like it makes trouble? Well, so the, the you know I had this kind of later on. You know I wanted to get into your work at ASAP, but we, since we're here, we might as well start. And so, you know, it, I, one of my guests came on last week. He's 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 an academic, and he's actually written a lot about this, much in much smarter ways than I can offer in my little silly own perspectives. But the idea of resilience. You know, you're you're protecting things for now, and your de- definition that you just described that makes sense to me. But some people are defining it as like, okay, let's set up this natural system or let's set up this built environment so it'll rebound to the previous system based on what climate change impacts will be, and that in itself could lead to maladaptation. And again, your definition was different than what some other folks dealing with resilience might think about. But I get it from a Someone who's landing at your website, resilience is a, a buzzword that I think it communicates a lot quickly. But so I get that. But that's where I'm mm-hmm. kind of coming from. No, I hear that. And it kind of, you know, comes out of the ecological tradition where it's, you know, the same ecological state. Like you get it. There's a big disturbance and you it's the system is disturbed, but it comes back to that same state without changing. And I don't know on the human natural system as we prepare for climate change, whether that's really what we want to embrace or if we want to embrace the ability to adapt and move beyond that. So I can see where that might be potential confusion. But from our standpoint, like we really are trying to be resilient for future conditions as well. And so I think that term of not just thinking about climate change, but climate change and other associated impacts together is what sort of gets pulled into the resilient side of thing that sometimes, you know, arguably could be left out of the adaptation discussion. Yeah, and you you dealt enough with like federal agencies and such that their definition of resilience could certainly lead to some I think troublesome you know applications mm-hmm. and that's you know especially I I come back from the natural resource realm of things and those things potentially could be at odds with each other so there's the concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Well, the other thing that really resonates with me from our homepage and just the fact that we do it collaboratively with our clients so that we in that we build resilience together is really important to me in that, you know, it's not just the climate science that drives our action, but it's the local understanding, the traditional knowledge, the fact that people are dealing with these impacts on the ground already. And then you combine that with the best available science to make the best choices moving forward. So that's the other piece that speaks to me from that kind of tagline on our webpage. Yes, and I don't want people to go to your website and have any negative feelings. It's a beautiful no. website. <laughs> You've got some photos that sort of, I think, give that uh, impression that you are like a collaborative sort of group. And so it's, it's a great website. I was my, my I ask a lot of softball questions. It's my way of putting you on the spot. So there we go. Well, yeah, well thanks. Tell me a bit more about Adaptation International. And so you're, you're, you're very project oriented and I think there's a staff. Are they like really staff or are they just sort of collaborators that work within Adaptation International? Yeah. So we're a small organization and we bring together a team to suit the needs of a particular project and frequently we'll collaborate with a university because they're doing some of the best climate science work out there or potentially a federal agency or like one of NOAA's regionally integrated sciences and assessment centers. So we bring help bring that to the table and then we work with the local community to address whatever their particular climate adaptation needs are for that project, whether it's a vulnerability assessment or support developing an adaptation plan. So we have a small group of people that we frequently work with, but that group may change depending on the project that we're doing at the time. But you are a consulting firm and not necessarily like an NGO, right? 
That's correct. So, yep. like, so who are like your typical cu- customers? I mean, you, you'd mentioned like universities and such, but it, I mean, they kind of like bring people together. But is it the federal government that wants you to do something? So mostly we work with local communities, and so that's either Western communities or tribal communities. So our customers or clients would be like the city of San Angelo or the city of Austin. We work with Boulder or we'll work with a tribal community that you know knows that climate change is an issue and it's affecting things on the ground but doesn't quite know how to get their arms around what those changes are going to be or what they can do to be better prepared. For the future, so they're reaching out for help, assistance, or collaboration in working on that issue, and that's where we'll come in to the table. And sometimes, you know, the city or the community has their own funding to support that work, and sometimes we'll work collaboratively with them to then put in funding to, say, a federal agency or a philanthropy in order to get a project funded that would help them deal with those issues. So sometimes it's boom or bust in some of these industries, but do you feel like uh, do you have enough work? I mean, is adaptation getting more funding heading its way? I think so. Yeah, both from my perspective on the private sector side, but then, as you alluded to, I used to work with American Society of Adaptation Professionals and was the first managing director there. And I think the sense there from the people working in the field is that we're sort of on the cusp of, you know, an explosion in the climate adaptation space. And I feel like the acknowledgement that climate is changing and that we have to do something about that and that being holistic and not just reducing emissions, but also adapting to those changes is kind of finally there and on the forefront of people's thinking. Well, hold that thought too. I want to have a a deeper conversation about your time at ASAP, but I'm curious, you have quite a bit of experience working with tribal groups, and I'm just curious, what's that like? You know, do you feel like you get into a workshop with with tribal reps, and how much different is it from maybe local government or other groups? I mean, it, it must be sort of interesting to kind of hear their perspectives on this issue. Yeah, no, it really is interesting. And, I mean, we're facing communities across the country are facing very similar issues, you know, changes to resources that they depend on or, you know, impacts to human health or infrastructure. You know all that. You've talked about it a lot on your different um, podcast sessions. But for the tribal communities, it's interesting. In some ways, it feels like they are more optimistic about the changes and more ready to devote effort they know and they are frequently more closely connected to the natural resources on the ground. So they've already seen the impacts happening. And then also they come from this tradition where they've experienced a ridiculous amount of change over the last few hundred years, let alone the last thousands of years. And they have this perspective that they are here in this place on this landscape, and that's not going to change. Climate change is just one more issue that they have to deal with and they're ready to tackle it to be, you know, so that they can continue to be on this landscape. And in some ways, the climate-related changes pale to some of the social changes they've experienced over the last few hundred years. So have you encountered, you know, some tribal interests actually hold a lot of uh, rights to land. And so is there any sort of conflict between, you know, energy development on some of these tribal lands that obviously benefit the, the tribes that are on uh, on those lands? But then at the same time, you, I, I've dealt with them to, to a certain extent, and there's a, just a deep, passionate desire to to protect those lands have you kind of come across that sort of friction yeah definitely and it's some ways more acute because they're intimately aware 
of how those landscape changes, like installing wind farms or solar panels, would affect species. And then uh, obviously in the Pacific Northwest, it's even more pronounced if you're talking about hydropower and dealing with the legacy of hydropower or the potential for getting more hydropower and how that would affect natural resources like salmon production. So there is definitely that tension, but it feels like they're committed to ensuring the long-term survival, assuming that's possible in some cases, for the natural resources that they depend on. So did you work with Sean Hart at the, this is a Department of Interior's Bureau of Tribal Affairs. Did you know Sean? I know him, but didn't work with him directly. Most of our work has been with tribal communities specifically and not as much with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah, he was their climate change coordinator. And so they just gave him a big pot of money. And so he was, you know, he was interacting a lot with individual tribes. So I I was just curious. He had a unique position. It was just him for a while. But it's like, all right, here's $10 Mm -hmm. million. Go out and spend it. And I'm a group. I'm sure some tribal groups could potentially work with like Adaptation International. But I guess you didn't cross paths with him. So. Um, yeah, I knew of him and met him like at the National Adaptation Forum during some of those adaptation workshops and working groups that the tribal communities had. But it was really the local tribal community that we were working with. Just from your project page, I, it seemed like half your projects are with, with tribal interests. Is that accurate or was that sort of a sampling of projects you're currently involved in? It's definitely a sampling, but yeah, probably a third to half of our work has been with tribal communities. And I feel like it's a really interesting area for us to work. I learn something new every time. And some of the natural resource and other staff members in those tribal communities are just so knowledgeable about, you know, how the landscape has already changed and bringing that into the discussion and merging it with the climate projections really creates a rich foundation for taking action. I'm kind of visualizing a potential customer to Adaptation International, even how they come to to your website or they hear about you. And so you're involved with these relatively mature projects. And so, like, let's say there's a local government. Do you feel like, I mean, is there a basic skill set that even, like, a local city planner needs to have to even be able to sort of ask you for, you know, help in the sense that you would potentially, you know, facilitate the work that they're doing does that make sense that, you know, you go to your page and, like, some people don't even know what they want? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that is an issue, but I feel like that skill set is starting to mature. You know, if you had had that question five years ago, there would only have been a handful of people who knew how to ask the right questions. But through other collaborations, like with the NOAA RISA programs and others, there's been some kind of shared development of, you know, what is the type of information that people need? So they are starting to know enough to say, hey, we know this is an issue. We need help translating this or we need help developing strategies to deal with it. But sometimes it does take a conversation of, you know, there'll be initial contact and they'll say, hey, this is what we need. And then it'll be some back and forth and say, are you sure that's what you need? Maybe what you really need is something a little bit different before you can you know, help them move forward with it. But that's an insightful question, I think. Well, yeah, just I, I, I sometimes people don't even have the ability to understand what it means to do adaptation planning. And, you know, some of the trainings that are going around are, are trying to give people that baseline. But it, it, I think it's going to be another five, ten years before mm-hmm. they like that. I'm sure that's the work that you were encountering at ASAP. You know, it's like, well, what is this baseline level of awareness? Right. No. And how do we move like the bigger question potentially is how do we move from this? 
subset of, you know, those few leading communities that are kind of on the cutting edge of a lot of these sustainability related issues to broaden the circle and really make it something that's accessible to that next level of city that maybe doesn't have the staff capacity or you know, has other issues that have superseded their ability to tackle some of these sustainability challenges or climate related challenges and really broaden the group of people that are taking action. You know, like the Urban Sustainability Directors Network has a climate preparedness working group and half of the members of the Urban Sustainability Directors Network, USDN, are members of that climate preparedness working group. And so you can tell there's interest out there, but that's still only 50 cities around the U.S., you know, half of their hundred and something members. So how do we broaden it to like the next hundred and the next hundred and the next hundred? And how do we get that baseline to raise up is a really challenging question and something that maybe ASAP can help play a role in solving. You listening, Beth? Um, <laughs> so we'll, we'll get there, but I, I'm curious. You're in Austin, Texas, right? I think I mentioned that earlier. Yeah, we are based out of Austin, Texas. So yep. how, how did you end up in Austin doing what you're doing? Yeah, great question. So as many things, you know, it's not just a single point decision, but I was in, came down to Austin after grad school because my wife was in grad school going to the University of Texas at Austin. And if you know Texas, you know that Austin is like this little oasis in the middle of Texas. So you might not think of Texas as being in the forefront of climate adaptation, which it's not, but the city of Austin in some ways is and would think of itself as, you know, part of that spectrum with Portland and Berkeley and Seattle and Chicago, even though they're a little bit smaller and maybe don't have as many resources. So moved to Austin and realized it was this little oasis um, and started working with the city's climate protection program back in 2007. And at that time, the climate protection program was almost exclusively focused on mitigation and it really came from a political choice at the time because the city wanted to move forward. But, you know, that was back in the era right after an inconvenient truth where it was kind of mitigation or adaptation. You know, we didn't have to do we couldn't think about doing both. If we stopped mitigating or reducing greenhouse gas emissions and decided to devote some time and effort to preparing for the impacts, that means we'd thrown in the towel and given up and daggone, you know, Texans don't lose at anything, so we weren't going to lose the fight against climate change. So all of the effort at that time was devoted towards mitigation. Well, we have a similar path that my wife went to the University of Texas at Austin for her master's, and so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I know Austin, and you're absolutely right. It is this bubble. You drive 10 minutes outside of Austin, and you are in a different universe. So, <laughs> uh, well, that's uh, my follow-up question to that is that, okay, you know, I don't do this with everyone, but I'm going to do it with you, is that you're in Austin, Texas, and maybe you get up to Dallas or Houston, and so your particular field comes up. You're dealing with adaptation to climate change. You must have an adaptation elevator speech. Sure. Okay, let's yeah. hear it. Let's hear it. <laughs> like a 20, 30 second. I mean, like if you're in the elevator with this good old boy, you know, oil driller guy with a big cowboy hat on and he's just asking you questions like, what do you do for a living? What would you say to the guy? 
Well, first I would check and make sure I was wearing the biggest belt buckle that I had possible. Okay, good, good, good. Cowboy hat, you know, cowboy check. boots. But now I'd say, so I work on helping communities prepare for the impacts of climate change, like droughts and floods. So if you think back to the drought of 2011, when, you know, we barely had any water and lakes throughout all of Texas, and that kind of changed how we thought about water resources and how we used water in the state. So I help these communities think about the future and how those things like changing water resources need to be addressed so that we can prepare and be less vulnerable to these you know crazy weather swings that we're already having let alone the ones that are going to be happening and happening in the future okay that was pretty good that was good because you 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 brought it back to texas and you mentioned drought and i'm sure just about every other person in texas is always talking about drought so that's good (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's either drought or it's either drought or flooding. And it's been amazing. You know, the last couple of years in May, we've had so much rain that, you know, now the drought is quote unquote over. But we still have a little window of being able to talk about drought in the state and water resources and preparing for drought in a different way than we could have back before 2011. Well, okay, that's encouraging. And so you must get up to Dallas and Houston once in a while. And, you know, I think the city of Houston is actually pretty progressive in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, I don't can't claim to know all the nuances of what they're doing, but they have a sustainability department and they're working on density and transportation. And they've even done some climate preparedness work there, you know. Allison, like they have a legacy of dealing with flooding, like Tropical Storm Allison that came in back in the early 2000s. And even though it wasn't a hurricane, it just stopped over the city and dumped water on the city. And because it's flat and full of concrete, there was nowhere for the water to go. And so they've committed effort to things like the Green Bayou program, where they're taking their bayous that run through the city and converting them so that there's less concrete, more green space to absorb stormwater. And then they're also doing some multi-purpose use of that space by adding bike trails and things like that and trying to think about connecting neighborhoods through the bayous, which have frequently been at the back of the neighborhoods. So it's kind of cool that even in Texas, you know, and outside of that bubble that's Austin, you can see these little examples of success or in ways that a community is moving forward on these issues in a way that fits with that particular community. You know, I, I applaud Houston in a lot of ways. They're doing some interesting things, but I had to live there for a summer. My dad was living there and those highways just scared oh. the hell out of me. I mean, just <laughs> eight lanes on each side. It was, oh man, it's just a very car oriented culture. So Definitely, and no geographic constraints. So you start in the center of the city, you can go any direction for 45 minutes, and it all looks basically the same. Well, I think the only constraint is the wall of oil refineries, what, on the uh, east side of town? (laughs) (laughs) The natural constraint. Sorry, Houston, you guys are doing some cool things there. Um, Don't mean to diss you. Sasha, I want to jump in, and I I think it's going to be very interesting for a lot of people, that you were the first managing director of the, you you alluded to it earlier, the American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And so I'd like to talk a bit about your your role there. And so how did you end up there in the first place? Yeah, no, thanks for asking that question. And I know for your listeners, you had a conversation with the current managing director, Beth Gibbons, a few weeks ago, so it would be kind of a cool continuity to check that one out as well. Oh, it's been like two and a half months. It's been a while, so there'll be a nice bit of time. But go on. Go on, yeah. 
Um, so I came to that space. I started, as you said, Adaptation International. And then, you know, we were growing slowly, fairly organically. But this opportunity came along to work with American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And I jumped at the opportunity to collaborate with colleagues across the country and really do a little bit to help grow the field as a whole. You know, I think it was a it's a unique system professional society, and it's not very often that you have a chance to work in an emerging field where there isn't an established professional society. And so some of the challenges were like, how do we develop the framework and infrastructure so that we can really start supporting and connecting the people across the country that are working on adaptation? And what does that look like? What does a professional society in the 21st century look like? How does, you know, is it part social network so that people can connect with each other? Is it, you know, Part newsletters and information transfer so that the work that we're doing on sea level rise on the East Coast can be transferred over to the West Coast and we can learn from the lessons that people are developing in Southeast Florida and apply them to Washington State. So it's some of those kind of challenging questions that really brought me to ASAP and felt like this would be a great place to devote some of my efforts and feel like I'm making a little broader contribution to the field as a whole. So uh, I guess maybe get even a little bit more background. I, probably even before you got there, I, I, I think it wasn't it Rockefeller or was it Kresge that was like providing some funding, and then there was the who's the like this mother NGO there that's hosting the group. It's um. So it was really a little bit of a consortium. Um, so it started out with Rockefeller providing some foundation to a small group to kind of scope what ASAP would look like. You know, before the American Society of Adaptation Professionals had a name. It's like there's something here. Every time professionals working in this field would get together at a conference, you know, there'd be a lot of information exchange and people would be like, oh, I can't believe you're working on that issue too. How'd you deal with this? Or, oh, that's a great idea. You know, we should really share information. And then like anything, you know, people get busy. And so after the workshop, you know, there'd be a few emails or after the conference, there'd be a few emails and a telephone call, but then people would sort of drift back off. And so needed something to kind of organize and help to pull the field together because it really felt like there were, you know, hundreds of people working on their own local issues and developing their own approaches, but there wasn't a way to connect easily across those. So Rockefeller provided some initial funding to get it started and kind of scope it. And then it was really the MacArthur Foundation and the Kresge Foundation okay. who generously jumped into the mix before I was hired and provided enough funding so that they could hire, you know, a managing director to really provide the consistent attention that, you know, the growth of a new organization needs. I think on the website, I think just after you left, it was still there, that there is a bit of a history of ASAP. And I think that's actually probably really useful to some groups that are looking at, integrating adaptation as an institution. So I, I thought that was that kind of history of ASAP was like, how do you, you know, you pull this thing out of thin air, you're trying to make a society and that's a, that's a big leap, but it, like you just described, it's, it's, you know, it's almost inevitable just because there's so many people kind of starting to get in the field. Right. It feels like there is the demand or the demand exists for this type of network. And I mean, honestly, I think ASAP is still in its early adolescence as far as growth and development and finding out how to best serve the needs of the field. Like how does it complement things that are already out there, the work that federal agencies are doing, the work that nonprofits are doing, the work that cities are doing, and how does it fit in with other professional societies? So there's some of that that's still maturing. Absolutely. But it's, you know, it's definitely out in the world now and has its carving out its place. 
So when Beth came on, we were sort of projecting potential numbers of members, and we threw out 10,000, I think, in the first six months. And so uh, I think she was joking, but I wasn't. <laughs> so, Beth, I know you're going to listen to this. Uh, I, I, we're going to check in on those numbers soon. So, all right. Right. You only have three and a half. The gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> 10,000, you know. Well, uh, you know, when you're there, you're, at, you're managing director your first day on the job, and you did this out of Austin, right? That's correct, yes. Right. So, I mean, it's, it's like, okay, I'm a society. And at the end of the day, though, you're still just a member organization. I mean, it must be very intimidating to say, please join my group. I mean, what, what sort of strategies were you using? Well, there are a couple of strategies, and I think Beth has continued some of these. One is we made the conscious choice to support existing efforts. So there are a number of regional climate adaptation conferences across the country, and then there's the National Adaptation Forum. So as a new professional society, instead of developing a conference to compete with those, we really just jumped in and added our support to it to kind of build some regional networks and help people have some face time together or have time at the National Adaptation Forum to build that national network. So some of that was a conscious choice. But the nice thing is, even though I was in Austin, Texas, and I was the only person officially working for ASAP, though we had some support through the Institute for Sustainable Communities that was incubating the society as it got up to speed. I never felt truly alone. You know, ASAP has a great board of directors that's, you know, that are professionals working in the field and it already had a mailing list of 80 or so people that had committed to wanting to, you know, participate in it. So it was really just reaching out to them and drawing on their vision and trying to figure out how to make this society valuable for them. Well, I think part of that growing process is that you guys went from like a, a free member society, but then you made that pivot to like a paid membership and you you're, you were able to, to sustain some pretty good numbers, right? Yeah, I think it's a challenge, right? It's a challenge to go from being free to actually being a membership society where people pay member dues. Um, so you have to prove value to people. So there's some value in there. But then you also, I think people value what they pay for. So it can't continue to be free forever and the foundations won't support it on their own forever. And so you need to start to transition to a model where ASAP could be self-sufficient either through membership dues or sponsorships or, you know, collaborations, you know, find ways that it could stand on its own two feet and not rely slowly on the generous support of the Kresge and MacArthur foundations forever. Yeah, I guess that's the really tricky thing is that how do you sort of determine what the value is as being a member? But if you're a new group, it really is sort of, you know, we're all in this together. You know, you give us a little bit of time because mm -hmm. it's you're not really going to be able to offer that many member services. And one member service in itself is the accessibility to a lot more members. And that just takes time. Mm -hmm. No, it's definitely true. And I think in some ways ASAP is or was when I was there, kind of relying on the good faith of the membership to trust that over the next, you know, six months till we get to 10,000 members or over the, you know, the first few years of it, that process would continue to develop. So when you have one member service or two, and as it finds fine tunes what it provides the membership over the next few years, hopefully we'll continue to justify that membership amount. Did you find that you targeted certain parts of the country? You think, okay, California, Washington, D.C., Mid-Atlantic, that these are good places to recruit in. I mean, did you kind of look at it that way? Or, I mean, you mentioned that you kind of look at conferences and those kind of things. But did you – I mean, there's just a target-rich area. Was that part of your strategy? 
um, in some ways because we were leveraging the conferences that were already happening. So we didn't necessarily try and plant a flag in areas where we don't have very memory, many members at this point, like South Dakota or North Dakota, you know, but we would go to the place that already had the momentum to have a climate adaptation conference. So the Northeast, the Midwest, the Southeast, the Northwest, but it was really to draw on those people that were already working in the field and looking for a home. I do think, especially with people that are excited to be doing climate change, having like, you know, ASAP on your LinkedIn page is an attractive thing. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a, it's a nice tag. And so I'm, it's probably getting quite a few members just that way. Yeah. Well, let me um, turn it back to you just for saying, like, you were one of the early members of ASAP. What brought you to the society? And do you feel like it is continuing to grow and provide service or you feel like it needs to take a different approach? Oh, turning the tables. Um, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not just the, curious. You know, you don't have to go into a whole bunch of detail. Well, I'm I'm, I'm trying to think because I, I it definitely highs and lows of my participation and being versus a uh, volunteer, free member versus a paid. And so early on, I think it was more of a novelty too because you know I I feel like I'm an old timer when it comes to adaptation. And so like, oh great, here's the society. And I think I got involved with one of the working groups, the policy working group. And mm-hmm. I like that there was interfaces there, but at this, if I had to have some criticism, it's just more like there's too diverse of individuals on like, okay, what are we trying to accomplish here, you know? Mm-hmm. And the, 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 you know, if you're not getting in a room and workshopping these things uh, on the whiteboard, you, you, you really lose a lot. And that I just, that had nothing to do with like the, the notion mm-hmm. of it being there, but it just, you'd have those kind of conversations, but I like the direction it was going, trying to break off into that. And, you know, I've had that conversation with Beth is that ASAP is at the stage where, you know, her main focus really should be getting members and providing the financial stability of that organization. But, uh, you know, I was pushing too is that it should be a leader on policy. And what we just talked about with resilience Mm -hmm. and adaptation, it's just that I would love that ASAP is like the American Planning Association has a full staff and there's a legislative director and they're there and they're, arguing those things but it's just it's going to take time to get to that point to reach that potential but i guess back to your original question going to the paid model you know what it, again i think it, it was more about a goodwill effort like you know what that this is not real until people are willing to fork over money and maybe i'm not getting a ton of services right now but it's it's one person there i get it my wife runs her own ngo she's one person yeah. there's only so much you can do so does that answer your question yeah, totally. Thanks. Well, let's flip this back around. Who's in charge? Yeah, uh, um, totally. Well, my question related to uh, – let me look at my notes here. No um, oh, there it is. All right. I, I had it in my head, and I pivoted. So there's another group out there that's not quite ASAP, and I've talked about this before, but it's ACO. They think it's the Association for Climate Change Officers. And they have a bit different focus, but there's still quite a bit of overlap. And they have gone heavily in the certification direction. And I just had this conversation with Laura Hansen and Jenny Hoffman. You probably know those two very well. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and the old notion of should ASAP pursue certification for its members? And uh, my conversation with Beth was like yes and no. You know, <laughs> what is certification? And I'm curious, did you have those conversations when you were there? And forget you being at ASAP, just even today, do you think being certified in adaptation is worthy right now? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think it's one that's 
coming to a head with the field, you know, as the field matures, it's like, where do we take it now? And my personal perspective is that no, we're not ready for certification. Um, I feel like there's definitely a role for training. As you said, like, how do we teach those people who are working in a city? Like, what do they need to ask? What sort of, how do they put things together? And so they're order to hire people to help them or who do they collaborate with? How do they differentiate good from bad? Um, in some ways, the adaptation field, I feel like, is still a bit of the Wild West. You know, anybody could ride their horse out into the plains and hang up a shingle and say they can do adaptation work and they'll be, there's no way or it's difficult, maybe there's not no way, but it's difficult necessarily to distinguish between, you know, two people say, yes, we can help you with adaptation and so I think some training and then eventually certification makes sense, but I feel like it's premature to jump into certifying people on being able to adapt as the whole field is kind of figuring out what does that mean? What are the skill sets that are necessary and how do we get to that point down the road? Well, listen, let's be perfectly honest here. Saying that you're certifying someone is, I mean, it's, it's a large part of that is it's a marketing ploy too, you know, you're getting mm-hmm. that certification and come with me and you get certified and it, that looks good. And so that's why you're going to get business. And, you know, at the national adaptation forum, you know, Dan Krieger is over at ACO. He, he had those conversations with groups and he was trying to recruit experts to kind of help fill in some of the gaps with ACO's approach with certification. And it's been a little while since then. I'm just curious and where, where, where they're at now, but yeah, it, like you said, it was totally wild, wild west. And the certification is pretty much only as good as the individual product that a particular individual delivers to who might use that mm-hmm. person, it's still too mm-hmm. early. And I think um, Steve Adams, I've talked with him. You you worked with Steve Adams, and you know the American Planning Association is a potential model for ASAP, and that is just a very mature organization. And getting mm-hmm. certified as a planner is a really important thing. But there's any number of pathways that an adaptation professional would need to take to get there. So it is, it's very early. Yeah. No, I definitely agree that we're too early for that. But I don't think that that necessarily precludes the need to devote time and effort and thinking and resources to training people to be better able to work in their jobs and think about the impacts of climate change. And I don't, I wonder if some partnerships with like APA or the American Institutes of Architects or others could help flesh out some of those training needs. Like what is it that an architect would need to know about climate change in order to be incorporated into their job? And kind of in my head, I see this Venn diagram between ASAP and APA and AIA and civil engineers and, you know, stormwater managers and all those fields. And, not everybody who's an architect is going to be a member of ASAP, but there's probably this little overlap where if ASAP could work on training those people, then they could help disseminate it out and kind of broaden the circle and put information out there or continue education units tailored for their field and the people that work in it. Well, no, that that is a great idea. I'm just imagining as you get trained as a whatever the certified as a planner, that one module would be about adaptation and some group like ASAP or whoever would be there to actually lead that. And who knows, it's a potential stream of revenue, but you're tying yourself with the prestige of a, a larger organization. And it sounds like you already were thinking about those things, but uh, you, you, yeah, why not ride the backs of existing things? And that's, that's how you, that's how you do it when you start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, ha- and ideally right. Co-develop that training because no one knows the needs of, 
planners more than the planning society or, you know, architects more than the Institute of Architects. And so how do ASAP doesn't have to develop it solely on its own, but it could collaborate with them and develop that module that then plugs in and kind of begs the question of how do we mainstream or incorporate climate planning into everything that we do? And do we move away from having adaptation plans to just incorporating climate preparedness into all of these existing plans like hazard mitigation plans and stormwater management plans and land use codes and things like that. So maybe it's like there's some synergies between how the field's developing and how these professional societies operate. Well, I think, you know, the field has to be careful too that, you know, there's a lot of people that, and that was my background, your adaptation in the natural resources zone, but then you have people in the built environment which I think, as you probably saw, is just coming on strong, and they just have very different interests. And if those two kind of veer off from each other, it's going to be a huge missed opportunity. So I hope mm-hmm. ASAP plays a leadership role in just making sure adaptation, there is an umbrella approach to like what we're trying to accomplish here, even though there would be very different ways to doing things. So mm-hmm. You know what? That's really interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things I'm really proud of that ASAP did while I was there is this uh, – the prize for progress in adaptation that was awarded at the second national adaptation forum in 2015. And it was just a cool way to highlight, I think the potential value with ASAP because it really collected some really promising practices through a nomination process in all types of fields from all portions of the United States. And then with input from ASAP members as a selection committee, we looked at all those proposals and really narrowed it down to a set of four finalists. And ultimately, the city of Baltimore was chosen for their work integrating That's right. climate adaptation into their hazard mitigation plan and doing outreach to disadvantaged communities. But if you look at the four finalists, it's really this kind of awesome cross-section of adaptation practice in the U.S. from natural resource management to coastal zone to like a state level program. And it really highlights that adaptation is taking different forms in different parts of the country. And interestingly enough, the selection committee had that exact conversation like, well, should we separate it and should we provide a prize for progress in natural resources and a prize for progress in the urban setting? And there was a conscious choice that no, we should have one prize for progress and we should highlight these finalists because they're all great examples of adaptation and it's not just the one winner, but it should be under that same umbrella, just like you said. No, that's great. I'm glad you did that. I didn't realize I didn't make those kind of connections, but I remember hearing about Baltimore. So people love an award. It's a great strategy <laughs> to get some attention. But, you know, um, CEQ working with uh, the Fish Association of Fish Wildlife Agency, they have their own climate change leadership awards and they're in their second year. So yeah. <laughs> That's one way to get members. It's just you slap an award on something, and you know, obviously, these are prestigious things, but it's a good thing. It shows you're maturing as an industry. Mm, right. All right. So on, on I would, let's pivot a little bit, and you had sort of alluded to people that you have encountered and doing these things, and so I, I sort of want to ask you, as your own experience, you were kind of uniquely situated that you were meeting people all over the place, and you were trying to be friendly to everyone because you're getting to be members, but any sort of standout characters in your travels, like, all right, here's an, some really interesting guy doing adaptation, or there's, you know, just, you know what I'm getting at, like, some even if they're oddballs, it's just like, okay, who who are you meeting? It was really interesting, actually. You know, I did uh, have the opportunity to go to these different conferences and, you know, fly the ASAP flag and recruit members and meet people. And 
the climate change issue, you know, is so multi-sectoral that you'll bring people together under that heading. And it could be, you know, students who are working on it in a particular field that know climate change is going to affect their field. Could be like, you know, natural resource managers. It could even be like some of these doomsday prepper people that are like climate change is the end of the world and you know, right, we need right. to be better prepared for it. Um, so there are people that are just very focused on their one particular issue, whether it's coastal hazards or human health, and then they're trying to make some sort of connection to the climate piece. And then there are others that are, you know, more planning how many whiskey bottles they need to store in their cellar in order to survive the end of the world. Okay. <laughs> uh, but any names? Any was standouts? I mean, uh, or you don't feel comfortable? I'm just, it, it's, it, I think it's useful for people. They Google them. They learn something new about who's doing what out there. Oh, well, you were asking about oddballs, but you mean just in general, like people working in the field? Yeah, or maybe there's a passionate person out there. You're just like, wow, this this is a leader in adaptation or, you know, again, oddballs fine. You know, that someone's working <laughs> in the bayou and it's just like that they really don't, you know, they're, they're not a scientist or anything, but they're, they're doing some interesting work or whatever. And so I'm, I'm putting you on the spot here, but I'm just curious because you, uh, you were probably in a constant state of like meet people. Yeah, well, it did really expand my horizons, you know, so some it's hard to name people because there are so many people doing great work across the field. You know, we talked about the city of Baltimore. So Kristen Baja, who works for their sustainability office, has been recognized as a White House champion of change because of the work that they're doing to work with the disadvantaged populations that haven't been involved in the climate conversation that often. So she comes into that with that perspective and helps move it forward. Um, some of the tribal community members that we've been working with, one of our tribal contacts, Danny Stone, works with the Shoshone Bannock tribes in eastern Idaho. And he just has a very holistic perspective about, you know, where the tribe is in its development and its use of natural resources and the context of changing agricultural needs and natural resource needs. And it's looking to pull all those pieces together into something that's useful for the tribal government, but also for the tribal membership. And then another tribal contact, Joe Hostler, who works for the Yurok tribe out in Northern California. They're doing some really cool work looking at the human health impacts of climate change because they want the to help explain, you know, some of the challenges that they're having as a tribe and then help be better prepared for it and kind of push that envelope a little bit. So that's just three of the people that we've worked with and kind of float to the top as far as the people that I've learned from. But it's, you know, that's a small subset of everybody working in this field, as you know, and, you know, as you've been doing this podcast, you've probably chatted with a lot of them. Well, if, if you're comfortable with, I do show notes for the, these, uh, podcasts and like maybe even include some links to some of the work that they're doing. So that would be good. Um, and, and sure. on, on the flip side, could you name like three people that are just incompetent and are disaster and they just don't do adaptation <laughs> very well? And you can maybe just use a, you know, just be the initial, first initial, then their last name or something. But that, <laughs> that's not okay. We, we won't do that, but they're out there. We know they're out there and. You know, I might be one of them. They're making notes. The podcast guy. <laughs> no, I got it, Doug. Okay, so we actually have been talking for quite a while, and I don't believe it. This conversation's actually just been flying by, and I got a couple of questions I want to ask you before before we have to wrap it up. But the National Adaptation Forum, you had mentioned it earlier that this is something you're probably going to again next year, right? It's in May in uh, Minnesota. Yeah, absolutely. So, can you give? I mean, I uh, we we all sort of submit 
panel concepts, do you are we allowed to share what we're talking about? That, that's not a big deal, but you're going to be there and you're going to try to talk about a particular issue? Well, yeah, I submitted some panels just like a lot of people in the field. We don't know which panels have been selected yet and probably won't till early next year once the selection committee and the program committee have gone through their review of the process. I just love to go because it's such a opportunity to connect with people across the country that are working on these issues. And I love, you know, catching up with people in person, like you said, having the time, the face time that it's hard to get in other situations. Um, so some of the work that I'd like to talk about there is some of this tribal community work and, you know, how it may be slightly different from work in Western communities and lessons learned there. And then the other thing I'm really intrigued by, actually two things. So the other two things that I'm really intrigued by are the idea of thresholds, like how do we start translating climate information so that it's truly meaningful for a community and, you know, average temperature changes or seasonal change in precipitation most of the time doesn't do that. So is there a critical threshold, you know, a temperature above which we start to see more health impacts and more trips to the ER? Are there precipitation thresholds at a local community where the flooding impacts become real? And we already know those, or city planners already know those, or people working in those communities already know that if it rains more than an inch a day, then these roads flood. So how do we start to translate the climate information into that context? And then the other piece is the human health side of things. I feel like it's really left out of the conversation or kind of on the back burner. It's like, okay, we'll talk about all these you know, changes to natural resources or to the urban environment, and then we'll talk about human health. So I submitted a panel proposal to talk about kind of multi-level health preparedness efforts from the federal government side, like at the CDC, down to like a local tribal community, and how do we start to sync those up? Yeah, it would be interesting to see if, if it's bigger, you know, because this field's growing and, like, are they mm. – I wonder what – Laura Hansen is one of the people that kind of leads that and there's other folks, but I've just – I forgot what the – do you remember what the numbers were for the one in um, – where was it again? It was in – In St. Louis? St. Louis. Uh, were there, like, five, 600 people? That... I think it was more like seven or eight yeah, I'm sure. But I don't, I don't know off the top of my head. Well, I just wonder if they're like, okay, do they feel like it'll be successful growth that if there are a thousand? And so, you know, this field in just even two years, it's leaps and bounds. So I'm curious. I submitted a couple uh, panel topics and just, you know, Laura and anyone associated with the forum, if they don't get accepted. I will bury you on this podcast. <laughs> I will bury you. No, I won't. In fact, I probably doom myself that if uh, they'll be like, no, we can't let him in because he just said that. Um, but <laughs> so, and then Laura's going to okay. come back in the new year and we're just going to talk about the form in general, like just what you described. We'll just go deeper into like what they're hoping to accomplish to kind of give it some exposure. So I'm looking forward to it. Oh yeah. I'm looking forward to it too. That's great. And you should even, maybe you should think about doing some live podcasts from the event next year. Oh, totally. Kind of give your listeners a chance to, you know, listen in or get a little daily recap or something like that if they're not able to attend. Oh, no, totally. That's a great idea. And just I, I can see even maybe empowering something. You can do it on your iPhones. It's just people like you, maybe you have little mini interviews. There's only so many people I get exposed to. We do these little 90-second interviews. There's all sorts of ways to kind of bring that audio back into something interesting. So that, oh, that, nice. That would be very cool. Yeah, I got to put some thought into that. And, yeah, uh, let's see. My last question here really is something very Texas-oriented. And Texas came up with one of the most brilliant anti-littering uh, initiatives. And you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Don't mess. Don't mess with Texas. Exactly. Good for Texas. And it was, uh, mm -hmm. it was a really good thing. And so 
on the spot, could you come up with something equally boring related to adaptation for Texas? Like, you know, give us an expression. What? How could Texas lead on the issue of adaptation with some nice, cool expression like that? Ooh, that's a great question. You know what's cool about that, you know, don't mess with Texas slogan? And I think it really tapped into this underlying psychology of what makes Texans Texans. You know, they think of themselves first as Texans and then as part of the rest of the United States. So it's kind of like this is what makes us who we are. And so there's some little connection there that, you know, ties the littering issue into like the identity of the state. So I think you should yeah. like you. You might not give me one right now, but that uh, it's worth your time. You like you just said, and just come up with those buzzwords like independent, freedom, mm-hmm. all things associated with Texas, and then throw adapt. If you throw resilience in there, oh, I'll be unhappy. But use, it, <laughs> use adapt, and you you got yourself a new mo- motto that you know all sorts of people would pick up on. So it's just worth yeah. Your time. Yeah, totally. And, you know, I struggle a little bit with the term adaptation and how it resonates or not, you know, in a broader context. So maybe it's something like, you know, Texas, an independent Texas for the future or something. You know, maybe we think about that, but fit in the climate and weather piece, you know. Well, adaptation really is an awful word. And so the title of the podcast is America Adapts. And that actually has quite a bit of thought about it, and it goes a, a few years back from some other things that I was involved in, really tested out with some folks. Because adapts, people don't make the uh, immediate association with climate change, but there is that link. But adapts mm-hmm. is just a more positive, proactive word that you would mm-hmm. hopefully get people more interested in kind of getting behind as about adaptation is just, you know, a, a clunky, wonky word. And I mean, Right, totally. Yeah, so. And I think we need to tap into that positive nature. You know, I feel like that's one thing that's frequently missing from the climate conversation is the idea of like, if we tackle this now, we're going to come out better in the future. And we're working together in order to do that as opposed to, you know, it's all doom and gloom or bury your head in the sand, or we have to give up everything that makes our communities what they are now. So I think you're really on something as far as tapping into that positive framing of let's be prepared for the future Oh, yeah. You know, it beats the mitigation side where it's like, all right, change your light bulb and like deny yourself these things. And of course, we have to deal with mitigation. But uh, it seems on the adaptation side, it's just a it's a more positive pitch to get people interested in getting involved. At at least that's my naive interpretation of the situation. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we have to be positive because if we don't have hope in this, you know, kind of dire situation, what do we have? So how would we keep working and keep moving forward? So I totally agree. We have to be positive as we move forward. Ixnay on the dire snay. Um, <laughs> okay. I, on that note, I want to give my speaker the last word. Any message about Adaptation International or just sort of a positive send off, but please share any final thoughts. No, I think it's just that maybe the issue of adaptation is finally coming to the forefront, you know, at the end of 2016 and, if you continue the work that you're doing and ASAP continues its work and these communities start to address the challenges that face them now, that we can all build a better future together. Excellent message. Really appreciate that. And thanks, Sasha, for coming on. And I'm, uh, I'm not sure when I'll see you next, but probably for sure at the forum. So looking forward to that. All right. Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation, Doug, and keep up the great work. All right. Well, thank you. And everyone, thanks for joining us today. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. 
everybody. That's a wrap for this week's episode of America Daps, a climate change podcast. I am your host, Doug Parsons. Thanks so much for joining in. Thank you, Sasha Peterson, for joining us from Adaptation International. What a very interesting conversation with Sasha. I like Sasha, and he has a lot to say about adaptation. You want to learn more about Sasha and the work that he's doing? Go to the website at americadaps.org. And in the show notes, I'll have links to Sasha's work and links to other things that he's doing. So please check those out. Also, consider subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. You find the iTunes app on your phone. It's a big purple eye hit it and look for America Daps and subscribe or consider actually writing review. You can hit five stars if you want, or if you want to take the time and actually write a review, that would be greatly appreciated. Don't forget, also have a Facebook page and a Facebook community group. And the community group's getting more active. I write things there. People have been posting things there, and it's just a way to grow this community. If you have things to say or people to recommend, please go there. And I'm always looking for ideas for guests, and I can be reached at americadaps at gmail.com. And you can find that email also on the website. So you know, check it out. Let me know what you think of the show and if you have ideas for guests. Until next time, this is America Daps, the Climate Change Podcast.